Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Joe Biden is not the defender of American democracy. Joe Biden is the destroyer of American democracy. And it's it's him and his people. They can do whatever they want, break any law, tell any lie, ruin any life, trash any norm and get away with anything they want. That, of course, is Donald Trump making Sigmund Freud very happy. We will get to Donald Trump in a second. Now, we have a very interesting conversation for you today with Tom Nichols. We will bring Tom out shortly as well. First, I want to wish everybody a very happy Hanukkah, especially to those celebrating. And speaking of Jewishy things, I'm thrilled to announce that sometime over the next few days, we will be posting the first episode of a brand new podcast called Jew 2. That's right, Jew 2. It's hosted by me, Maddie, and Jen. Just three Jews sitting around each week talking lots of Jewy and non-Jewy shit with Jewy and non-Jewy guests. We'll attempt to answer the burning questions like, are only Jews hypochondriacs? Do non-Jews have bad stomachs? And do Gentiles get drafty? And we'll also discuss and compare overall customs and traditions, cliches and superstitions, expressions, myths, and lots of mishikas and general neuroses. It's going to be super fun and enlightening. And totally secular. So be sure to check it out, Jew 2, on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Here's some recent feedback we received. On our conversation with Rachel and Dr. Alexander Vinman, Kelly Bell writes, I love all three of y'all. Much respect. Carolyn Marks Blackwood writes, They are wonderful. And Gina Fox writes, Love those Vinmans. All right, let's get to our two big things. The first of which is the raging anti-Semitism which continues to sweep across America. And Dr. Gay at Harvard does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of antisemitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When it and is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or Code of Conduct, yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm gonna give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. It was the simplest 
question to answer, and the answer is a simple yes. But yet the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and UPenn, when they testified before Congress on Wednesday, couldn't do that. They couldn't just simply answer yes. Shockingly, their reprehensible answers were equivocating, um, seemingly lawyered up, and they were totally tone deaf, especially with what's going on in the country, in the world, in, in the last two months since the attack in Israel on October 7th. And it just, it was shocking. I mean, you have to assume that these people prepared for this testimony, prepared to go to Washington. They knew what the questions were going to be, and yet these were the answers, that uh, it's context-dependent, that the conduct has to lead to action. Now, I'm no fan of Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. Uh, I, I disagree with her on just about every single thing politically, but she was spot-on and rightly aggressive in her line of questioning. And uh, the very next day, at least two of those university presidents had to issue uh, embarrassingly mea culpa-like walk-back videos issuing what should have been the answers. Agree. No excuses. And um, I, I feel fortunate that my kids are older. I have a senior at, in college and one who graduated because it, it's a very difficult decision as a, a parent to send your child to an elite university where you don't know if your children are being protected by the people who are in charge. It's horrifying. And not just protected, but educated. Educated. Well, both. I want my children to be safe. I mean, the fact that students can freely walk a campus and call for either intifada, which Congressman Stefanik pressed at least one of these university presidents to admit literally is about genocide. Um, because for a while they were saying, well, nobody was saying genocide. Well, they were saying intifada. They were saying from the, the river to the sea. All of the generally accepted euphemisms for genocide. But it speaks to what we're dealing with in this country. It speaks to what we're dealing with in this world. So now we're learning that major donors like John Huntsman and, and the Huntsman family are threatening to pull upwards of $100 million of funding to University of Pennsylvania, unless it's President Liz McGill, who was one of the three that testified, unless she resigns, calls for the resignation of the other two are out there now as well. And uh, this is a major, I don't even want to say it's a PR nightmare. Academic malpractice is what it is. Yeah, I think the answer was obvious that calling for genocide of Jews violates the code of conduct, but yes, I did like to try and get in their heads and listen to the whole hearing. I just think that they uh, were thinking of a second question which is what constitutes calling for genocide of Jews. And they weren't thinking of the obvious question, which is what they were asked. So they were, I think, thinking of nuances in, say, people saying from the river to the sea, which many people do see as a call for genocide, but other people don't. It has, an, it has a different history for different people. And I don't think kids should be expelled for necessarily being in a group that says something like that. Having said that, it's obvious that, you know, since 2015, they have exploded diversity, equity, and inclusion officers in every university, and they are all about microaggressions, but apparently only for other vulnerable groups, and Jews don't really count in those vulnerable groups. So this was a big miss, and I was uh, surprised that they couldn't do better. These are not stupid people. They're not evil people. They're empathetic people. Uh, I don't, I can't comprehend why they couldn't get that simple answer right. I agree that this is a complicated situation. There's, there is nuance. There are free speech issues to some people. Yet, there could have been 15 other acceptable answers. I mean, that's why they had to issue uh, video statements, apologetic statements the next day. And that's why probably at least one of them, I think, if not all of them, are going to be out of that job very soon. I mean, I agree that uh, at least one or two of them are going to resign. And really, let's face it, the only job of a college or university president is to raise money. They wake up in the morning and they have to think about how much money they're going to get because that's what their job really is. Yeah, and sadly, though, their number one job should be educating our students. There is such a void with context and history and perspective that 
I mean, civics. I mean, do do kids even understand what this stuff means? I mean, when I was in college, I studied the Holocaust. I studied government. I studied how shit works and what shit happened in our history. But I think we have on these college campuses and universities kids walking around spewing nonsense and they have no idea contextually what they're talking about. And therein lies the danger. Our system is broken. I would just add that I think kids know more than you think and they are learning a lot of things and they're not all getting all their news from TikTok. And, and it's true that we should never generalize about anything or anyone. But unfortunately, we all know that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And the kids who do know history and are shaping a narrative that is rooted in fact and context, those are the ones not on the news. And the ones who are on the news are the ones who are seemingly ignorant of all that and thereby feeding this growing epidemic of hate speak and anti-Semitic tropes and disinformation, not just about Jews, but about Israel and about history in general. And the silence of the progressives feed into this shit. Yeah. Well, we've talked to a lot of folks on this podcast about, you know, anti-Semitism coming from the progressive left. And that is a problem. Let's shift to our big thing. Number two, Donald Trump. I want to be very, very clear on this. To be clear, do you in any way have any plans whatsoever, if reelected president, to abuse power, to break the law, to use the government to go after people? You mean like they're using right now? So in the history of our country, what's happened to us, again, has never happened before. Over nonsense, over nothing, made up charges. I often say Al Capone, he was one of the greatest of all time, if you like criminals. He was a mob boss, the likes of which Scarface, they call him. And he got indicted once. I got indicted four times. I want to go back to this one issue, though, because the media has been focused on this and attacking you yeah. under no circumstances. You are promising America tonight. You would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Yeah. Except Look, what? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill. That's drill, not a that's, drill. That's not, no, no. that's not retribution. I got I'm going to be. I'm going to be. You know, he keeps. I <laughs> love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. You know, one of my favorite things in life is watching Sean Hannity squirm. <laughs> yeah. Like, no matter how many times he's talked to Donald Trump, and Donald Trump goes down that road of, of self-incrimination, and Hannity gets so visibly uncomfortable and tries to throw him lifeline after lifeline, Trump just doesn't take it. It's just, it's one of the, one of the funniest things. That was, that was a town hall the other night that uh, Sean Hannity held. The clip we played at the beginning of this episode was Trump's rally in Iowa. And Trump's just continuing to do his thing where he, you know, he's, he's a master of projection. It's all about, I know you are, but what am I? Whatever they're accusing me of, I'll accuse Biden of. So far, it's worked for him, but he's in a whole heap of legal trouble right now. And uh, I think this is where the, the rubber meets the road. And He's finally going to be held accountable, I think, somewhere in the next 12 months. But uh, if I was him, I'd still be saying the same shit because in his mind, it's, it just works, right? It, it works. does. When you say the quiet part out loud, yeah. it makes people feel very, very powerful. They're part of his cult. I also thought it was funny that he really seemed to really uh, relish Al Capone. He, he's jealous that he's not. Well, yeah, he's bragging. He's bragging that he's more gangster than Al Capone. Like, this is, this is someone who's... Can you imagine, like, 20 years ago, somebody, somebody was running... Or, like, Mitt Romney. If Mitt Romney was like, you know what? <laughs> Mitt Romney. <laughs> you know what? I'd be a good president, funny. and you know what? I'd be, I'd be more corrupt than Al Capone. Like, <laughs> boom, done. I mean, when you think about Howard Dean, his political career ended because of a scream. Now you have a president who's promising to be more gangster than Al Capone. And why? Because Al Capone, he's only got one indictment. I got four. Like, this is, this, this is a resume? Look to be how proud far of. we've come. How far or how <laughs> low we've, we've come. It's, in, it's insane. Um, but he, he just keeps making the Siggy Freud happy, you know. Uh, most incredible pupil of projection ever in the history of mankind. 
yesterday was it yesterday i can't it's hard to keep track of all the trump shit but like this week there was an nyu professor an expert in forensic accounting who testified in the new york state civil fraud trial uh, brought in by trump and his legal team and not shockingly this expert witness said not only is there no inappropriate behavior on the part of trump in how he valued his properties etc but he definitely did not commit fraud and uh yeah, it could sound reasonable. The guy's hmm. a, he, he's got a stellar reputation, NYU professor. Case closed. Uh, case closed, <laughs> except he was paid about a half a million dollars by Trump for that testimony. I guess uh, everyone can be bought. Yeah, one might say he's biased. Well, when you say Trump paid it, you know it came from GOP donors. <laughs> yeah, part of the old grift. All right, let's get to our winners and losers. My winner... Norman Lear, who among many, many other notable accolades, celebrated the needs and complexities of the everyday woman. My loser, no aid for Ukraine and Israel. My winner, you can tell from my little Tay-Tay bracelet, is Tay-Tay, who added $5 billion to the economy. And if she was an economy by herself, she would be bigger than 50 countries. And she's amazing. My loser are all three university presidents who couldn't manage to say yes to the most obvious question that, that calling for genocide for Jews is something that would be a harassment issue. Yeah. And to the uninformed, Tay-Tay is Taylor Swift. <laughs> As we learned recently, not everybody knows who that is. My loser is Texas and its draconian abortion law, which lost a critical court battle allowing Kate Cox, a 31-year-old, 20-weeks pregnant Dallas-area mother of two, to get an abortion after she learned her developing fetus has a rare chromosomal disorder likely to cause stillbirth or the death of the baby shortly after it's born, and which also puts her at risk for multiple serious medical issues. My winner is fascism, because for the first time in history, an American candidate for president is publicly running on a campaign promise of dictatorship. And that segues nicely into our weekly rant. What the fuck? No, seriously, what the fuck? I'm old enough to remember when Republicans, conservatives, and veterans especially, considered dictators the enemy and fought valiantly and patriotically to defeat them. No more. Today they want to put one back in the Oval Office. At a town hall with Sean Hannity Tuesday night, Donald Trump once again said the insane, unconscionable, unprecedented quiet part out loud by saying he'll be a dictator. Day one. As in the past, an incredulous Hannity who quickly grasped the magnitude of his sociopathic master's shockingly self-incriminating comments gave him multiple opportunities to walk them back. But not Trump. That's not what he does. His ego won't allow him to retract or apologize for anything. To the contrary, as he mocked Hannity's obvious discomfort, he doubled and tripled down. After nine years of Trump, it's not a surprise that he wants to terminate the Constitution and rule by fiat. He worships strongmen, autocrats, and dictators because he wants to be one. We know he loves oppressive tyrants like Kim Jong-un, Putin, Xi, MBS, Bolsonaro, Erdogan, and Orban. But what I simply don't understand and cannot accept is how any veteran and active-duty military personnel could support someone who openly promises to be a dictator on day one. How anyone who suited up to defend our democracy from our enemies, whose fathers and grandfathers fought and died protecting our freedom from authoritarians, could willfully help devolve America into an oppressive fascist regime. All right, let's get to Tom Nichols. He is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's an expert on international security issues who taught national security affairs for 25 years at the U.S. Naval War College, as well as at the Harvard Extension School, Dartmouth College, and Georgetown University. He is the author of several books on Russia, the Cold War, and international politics. His most recent book is Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. Tom, welcome into the back room. Thank you. Good to be with you. A couple of things before we get into the craziness, the news craziness of the day. You had a birthday yesterday. Happy birthday. I, I did. Thank you. 60, Thanks very much. 63. 63. Ah, you're a kid. I don't look a day over 62. I'm 64, but to me, you're just a kid. <laughs> and uh, do, do I have to put up with that? That You know, I love the Beatles, but you have to put up with that song on your 64th birthday over and over again. Well, I've just That's been... The one. Reading. I've just been telling people that the Beatles wrote a song for me. Yeah. And then I let anybody else deal with whatever they want to deal with about it. But <laughs> so that's it's my song. They wrote it for me. It's kind of like when when Charles Manson thought the the White Album was written for him. It's the cleaner version of that. Um, 
Jeopardy. I want to ask you about that. Is it true that yeah. you are a five-time undefeated Jeopardy champion and you're listed I, in the Jeopardy Hall of Fame? For I your- was listed in the uh, Jeopardy Hall of Fame um, <clears throat> back when uh, they uh, retired you at five games. So, of course, now my earnings don't even get close to the top 100 players because, you know, you have guys that have won a million, two million dollars. Right. Um, but back in the day, we were actually um, uh, limited to five games and $100,000. We had to sign a, a, a release saying that anything over that we would donate to charity. Wow. Um, because of the old, well, because this was because of the old um, quiz show scandals. Right. You know, right, right, right. Out there have ever seen the movie Quiz Show. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really a great movie, but they instituted all these really draconian rules for a while. Um, to prevent people from becoming, you know, super millionaires and potentially cheating. Um, they had all these rules on us, like we were a sequestered jury. You know, they told us, look, if you wander away from us, even go to the bathroom, um, we're going to send you home. Um, so it was very, this was like 30 years ago when I was on. And um, so, yeah, I was for a while, um, I was actually a six-time winner. I had to play six games because... Um, I was ruled wrong in one of my answers and, and in theory lost the game and they realized their mistake. Um, and, but for that answer, I would have won. So I had to come back and play one more game and I won that one. Um, so I uh, played those six. I went into the tournament of champions. I got smoked immediately. Hmm. Um, I went to the ultimate tournament of champions and I got smoked instantly <laughs> there too. So if I was in the top 100, I believe my rank was probably a hundred. Were you a game show freak in general, or was just Jeopardy no, that was your target? Just Jeopardy. My wow. My um, my parents were not educated people, but they loved books and they read a lot and they were very knowledgeable. And so my mom, um, like if I was home sick from school, my mom would come home, make something for lunch. She worked nearby. And um, we would watch Jeopardy and like keep track of you know which one of us was faster. And somehow I just kind of took to the game as a kid. Um, of course, we all loved Art Fleming, the original host. Mm-hmm. And so one day when I was 32 years old, I um, I said, yeah, sure, I'll send in this postcard because they were doing a tryout where I was living in, up in uh, northern New England. And, um, that you know, I, they picked my name out of a thing. I had to go take the test. I passed the test. And then when I got a call inviting me to Los Angeles, I thought it was a prank. Um, so I almost hung up on the guy. Uh, so I almost didn't make it because we'd like to invite you to, I was like, Oh, you guys cut it out, you know? Um, and so one thing led to another and there I was. And back when they used to film it in Hollywood, um, mm-hmm. uh, there I was on the sunset strip. And, uh, the next thing I knew I had tens of thousands of dollars. I shot all my games in one day. That's incredible. I try to watch Jeopardy sometimes. And I, I like most people, I, I bet I make it maybe five minutes in and I'm like, all right. All right, this is not going to work out well. But in honor of you, I will phrase all my questions today as answers, and you can. <laughs> and we can have our own little uh, little Jeopardy here. Uh, I've uh, heard that one <laughs> enough times, Andy. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. That, well, um, that's me. I'm very. When it comes to comedy, I'm the original. I'm all about original <laughs> original material. I'll tell people not to despair when they watch Jeopardy because everybody knows the answers. There, you really only need a high school diploma for most, like ninety five percent of the answers. And the thing is, you don't know them in eight seconds. That's the problem. Right. And sometimes it's hard to decode the riddle um, because the questions are written to be confusing when when the answer is really staring you right right in the face. You know, so the real Jeopardy talent is not being super smart about a million things. It's it's being able to decode the the riddle. If you're good at riddles, you'll actually like Jeopardy because all the questions are really just kind of riddles in their own way so yeah, i think you're being very modest we'll give well, you we'll give you the props of being su- right. super smart so my first question is more of a macro question because i do want to get into some micro specifically with your great piece in the atlantic which is part of the all trump issue but but i want to ask you first what's keeping you up these days at night well Probably the same thing that's kept me up at night for most of my career since I was in my 20s, which is nuclear weapons. Mm. We can solve anything 
as long as we're not um, rooting through the ashes or canned goods, um, you know, and living in lean-tos. Uh, and I worry every day that there's a major war raging in the middle of Europe that Americans don't, I shouldn't say that. Most Americans believe we're on the right side of it. Most Americans think we should help the good guys, um, but that, um, you know, there's a dictator in Russia on the loose trying to subjugate Europe, and you have the Republican Party kind of shrugging and saying whatever, um, and trying to use it for their political advantage. Um, and um, I just, you know, the more time, the longer that a country like that is at war, a country like Russia, the, the, the crazier things can get. I don't really worry about. Um, you know, Putin waking up one morning and say it's 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 war day, um, it's nuke day. I I just worry about stupid people doing stupid things, making stupid mistakes. Um, the Cold War, which I've written a lot about, and a lot of I've written a lot about nuclear weapons. Cold War is just full of freaky, screwed up mistakes. Um, you know, people, um, you know, flocks of geese or. Um, trying to think of the real the 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 real oh the um in the united here in the united states somebody put a training tape into the nor norad computers mm -hmm. and they went and woke up the president this was back when carter was president they woke up this big brzezinski and said we have an incoming soviet attack and uh, we'll call you in five minutes and five minutes later like, oh, oops we put in a you know simulation tape <laughs> um the soviets in 83 um you know their their computers glitched and they had a an incoming attack warning and fortunately there was a lieutenant colonel you know he's not a super senior officer and guy in this outpost who said nope i just don't buy it i'm not calling moscow so you know the, combine those things with um a lot of tension or military activity in the fog of war and you know something bad could happen especially to, to bring it back to our uh 45th president you know especially if you have somebody in office who's just not not very bright and who's kind of impulsive and isn't going to have a lot of people around him to control his worst instincts. So I, I think all problems in the world can be solved as long as there is still a world to solve them. So let's stay on Putin for a second. Do you see someone like Trump more dangerous than a dictator, murderer like Putin when it comes to nuclear war? No, um, you know, I think that the, I hope and pray that the United States is still bureaucratized enough in terms of, um, you know, how, and look, the president has sole release authority. They are the president's weapon um, here in the United States. But, I, but when I say bureaucratized, I mean in the sense that there's still going to be a secretary of defense and a national security council and strategic command. And there are plenty of chances for people around Trump to say, whoa, 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 you know, you know, th th this, this hurricane cannot be nuked out of existence, or, you know, this is not a place to go to a higher um, level of alert. What I worry about is that if my large concern is that world leaders can make stupid mistakes, that's really compounded when you have a president who is profoundly stupid. I mean, Donald Trump really is, and I, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be, you know, funny. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is just a profoundly stupid human being. Mm -hmm. um, and so I worry and that um, he could set things in motion that he doesn't understand, as I think he almost did with North Korea, for example. Well, let me tell them about my big button. Tell them how tough I am. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> well, I think... I don't think Putin's a maniac in that sense. But again, I worry, I was one of the people counseling caution at the outset of the war because you don't want to set up a situation where there's a lot of confusion, um, there's a lot of chaos, and then, you know, there's a mistake. Mm -hmm. And and again, you know, there's a, a, you know, rays of sunshine bouncing off of clouds suddenly convince people, convince people in a command center that they're under attack. Um, these things can really happen. So... When it comes to these issues, what I want is intelligent people with a lot of sober-minded advisors who are always going to take a beat before doing something dumb. And Donald Trump never hesitates before doing something dumb. Until, until now, we were fortunate 
that there were people around him mm -hmm. who said, don't do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so is he more dangerous? I don't think that's a fair question. I don't think more dangerous than Putin is, mm -hmm. is a fair question. Um, dumber than Putin? Absolutely. More prone to do something reckless that he himself does not understand? Um, quite possibly. Yeah, I would push back a little bit on the stupid thing. My opinion is that Trump is, he's a lot of things, but he's not dumb in a traditional sense. I think he's actually an evil genius because he understands his marketplace, he understands his audience, and he, and he delivers. I think he's incredibly emotional, impulsive, insecure, doesn't understand nuance. And to your point, I don't think he's intellectually curious. I don't think he understands the scope of certain decisions. But at the very least, I'll say something like there's been 46 people that have been elected president in this country in our 247 year history. It's hard to imagine somebody getting into that Oval Office who's stupid. Now that's, you're making a fundamental error there. Um, Tell me. First of all, there, he, he was the product of a lot of uh, luck. There was a perfect storm involved in 2016. Um, you know, I always think of Fran Leibowitz's comment about Trump, you know, as a longtime New Yorker and Trump observer, she said, you don't know anyone as stupid as Donald Trump. You just don't. Um, I will grant you that he has this kind of lizard brain instinctiveness mm -hmm. about things like marketing. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, this is a guy who could sell. You know, they all fail eventually, but he managed to sell crappy vodka and crappy steaks and. But, you know, you're talking about a guy who lost money in a casino. Right. You know, we keep, we always come back to that. It's like, how do you lose money in a casino? Not it's easy. Not easily. Um, you know, like casinos are licenses to print money. Mm -hmm. um, he's just not a very bright guy. Mm -hmm. But he came along at the right moment when there were a lot of Americans. Uh, um, this is what I wrote about in my last book and called Our Own Worst Enemy. A lot of people bored affluent, a kind of decadent society that was looking for just TV entertainment. And Trump said, I can do that. Mm -hmm. um, remember that when he first thought about running for president back in 1999, the whole idea just got laughed out of the room. He wasn't, he didn't get any smarter in 20 years, Andy. He mm -hmm. just, he just was, you know, in the right place at the right time. And then the Democrats, and I know I'm getting static from about this from my friends on the left, but, you know, and then the Democrats made the fateful decision to run Hillary Clinton, um, which was, you know, and I you can make all the arguments you want about it. I remember I voted for her. I wrote articles about her. But, you know, you can say that it was misogyny and the years of GOP propaganda. But that was a gift. I mean, they served up the most beatable Democratic candidate to a guy that had whose moment as a demagogue had arrived. And then you had the additional um, the additional benefit to him of this feckless Republican field who all were certain that he was going to be gone in a few minutes. So they mm -hmm. didn't attack him. They all said, when he's gone, it shall, I, Jeb or Marco or Chris, I shall scoop up his voters. And so I'm not going to alienate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a normal primary where people were, I think, thinking a little clearly, more clearly, um, they would have completely obliterated him, um, but they didn't. And so here we, and so then he became president and now has that luster. And I, and I don't think we should reverse engineer it and say, wow, he must have been doing something really brilliant because he, he did not win a majority of the country. And he threaded the needle of the electoral college, which was people around him being very smart about where to spend their money and people around Hillary being very dumb about where to spend their time and money. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and then was driven from office in both the Electoral College and with a huge popular vote loss. So, you know, the guy's a multiple tier loser, especially in the people he's since been um, endorsing. So, you know, let's let's pull back on that evil genius talk. I, I think <laughs> I get it. I get why you say it. But I think that's, um, you know, we don't want to make the guy into a golem, you know, that's 10 feet tall, because he, he really is just a very small person who has lucked into a very big role on the public. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear you, Tom. And as one of your friends on the left, I, I, I still have to say it's like, you know, he did have a lot of luck. He did have a lot of help. Perhaps he had help from Vladimir Putin. 
He's a visionary. He is a marketing savant. And um, we have to look at what this man has accomplished in the nine years since he descended that escalator in Trump Tower. Not only did he become president, which is a feat unto itself, no matter how he got there, um, mm. but he has single-handedly destroyed the Republican Party. He has co-opted every single thing they ever proclaimed to stand for, despite his behavior, despite his stupidity, if, if we want to call it that, despite his indictments, this, his corruption, his treason, somehow they are still, still marching in lockstep with him. On some level, that has to be, says you know... something about them, Andy. That yes. says something about those... Ge- they said, you know, but I I'm not voting for. I mean, I it does say something about them, but it also says to me more about him and his ability to get them to that point where they are just mindless. There were so, but there were so many single points of failure. Where any any one of them, you know, had had someone with a backbone been in charge of the Republican National Committee, for example, mm-hmm. you know, if, if um, there hadn't been decisions by people like Reince Priebus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was just this, again, I call it a perfect storm, but also a demagogue's moment where you had, um, you know, a Republican party that had been primed by Fox and the right-wing media ecosystem um, to the point of kind of being psychotic. And I used to write for conservative magazines. I mean, Mm -hmm. I got like Charlie Sykes and Stuart Stevens. I have to add my mea culpa to say, I, the way I once put it, I said, I thought I all thought we were in the constitutional bouncy house, that no matter how much we jumped around and threw elbows, we, we couldn't really break anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but um, I think there, yeah, you know, he lucked out by having been on television for so many years. Mm-hmm. He couldn't have forced this was this was a guy who had a television created personality. That's the part that still endures. I mean, that's the thing that amazes me mm-hmm. that as, with every revelation that he's not that wealthy, that he's a terrible businessman, mm-hmm. that he is just you know constantly in trouble about things like taxes and fraud. Um, that that millions of Americans have said, you know what? And this is this is where this becomes so much more about us than than him. Millions of Americans have said, look, I climbed way up this tree. I know most of these things. It would be too humiliating to climb down, and so I don't care now. Mm. I mean, in that sense, they have committed to him. They've doubled down. Um, it just doesn't matter for that group of people in the Republican Party. It doesn't matter anymore. If the Republicans had voted to convict um, to convict him in his impeachment, this would be over. Um, you know, if the Republican, if Mitch, if Mitch McConnell had zigged instead of zagged, this would be over. I mean, mm-hmm. I think really have to take into account how decrepit um, a lot of the institutions within the Republican Party and a lot of the people within the Republican Party became because they just like their jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the Jedi mind trick. He didn't do the Jedi mind trick on Elise Stefanik or J.D. Vance. They said, I like being in Congress. Sure. I guess this is what I got to do. Okay, that's what I got to do. That's what I got to do. And so they're enabling, in a sense, they're carrying him, not the other way around at this point. Yeah, I, I think it's a marriage of equals on some level. I mean, look, after January 6th, they had a golden opportunity to kick him to the curb, and they didn't. And uh, and they did, but that's what I mean about those inflection points. Mm-hmm. After January 6th, and who screws that up? Kevin McCarthy flies down to Mar-a-Lago. Our Kevin flies down to Florida and says, um, let me, as the, you know, the leader, the, the, ten, the leader pro tem of the Republican Party come down here and rehabilitate you and welcome you into the fold. So you, you don't think he went down there to say, Donald, you have to eat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't no, the reason. I, amazingly, I'm uh, I'm not sure I believe much of that Kevin McCarthy says, but no, I think he, he you know, um, that there are, there are a lot of congressmen in cherry red districts who said, you know, my people like this guy and that's how they like me. And, you know, we got to get this guy back on track so that I can go back to Congress instead of having to go home and live among my constituents who scare me. Yeah. Well, I think you and I are probably not the only people that are going to be debating who and what is Donald Trump. I think sociologists, anthropologists, psychiatrists, professors are going to be studying him for the next five bazillion years. So it is an interesting conversation. But I'll just 
put a punctuation on this conversation about him by saying he's like John Gotti smart. That's the way I look at him. Like John yeah, Gotti. Okay. I mean, you know, that's a fair. Yeah. That, that's fair. Became I mean, the godfather, know, did what he had to do, didn't care about breaking the right. law or breaking the uh, code of Omerta and or whatever. Then, and then what happened to John Gotti? Didn't end well. In prison. Right. right. Okay. So, you know, my, I have yeah. a, I have a running gag with um, a friend of mine, um, my, my pal, Nick Bozdev, who's a, um, I worked with for years at the War College. And we always take that line from Red Dawn, um, you know, where uh, the the Cuban colonel and the Soviet colonel, you know, occupying this little Colorado town. And the, the Cuban colonel is like, you know, I've seen these. These are freedom fight. My, you know, these Americans are freedom fighters. They're like the guys we fought in Cambodia and Colombia and Nicaragua, you know. And the Soviet colonel says, and they lost Ernesto. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, so eventually, and, and part of the reason I push back against this evil genius narrative, he is beatable. Mm -hmm. He well, is. Well, he lost beatable. once. So he, he's lost. Well, he's lost uh, once. And also, remember, he's gone around the country saying, elect this person, elect yeah. that person. And they all lose. With the exception so of the not... House in 2022, the Republican Party, for basically the last seven years or so, has lost every single major election, special election. And the House, which was supposed to be won by 40 to 60 points, was won by four seats. So yeah, I, I totally hear you, and I agree with that, it, which makes it even more crazy that, it's like they, that he, they still follow this guy's lead. Odd thing to say that he's probably the best thing that ever happened to the Democratic Party, Yes, uh, at least in the last 10 years. Well, okay. you mentioned Stuart Stevens. I, I had Stuart on, on this program, and... Uh, I, I've been one of these Democrats who always rail about the inept messaging of the Democratic Party. Like, why can't we? Why can't we be like the Republicans? Why can't we create the bumper stickers? Why do we have to get so nuanced and over intellectual? And uh, and Stewart said, "But think about it. You guys have won everything, so the messaging works, right? Yeah. It works. Well, and you've had. Um, I taught strategy for a lot of years as Democrats. You've had what um, strategists call a cooperative adversary." <laughs> Um, you know, somebody who runs halfway out in the field just to shoot themselves. Um, because the, and, and the problem for the Republicans is that the things that keep, you know, a Stefanik or, you know, pick your favorite right-wing congressman, you know, Marjorie Taylor mm -hmm. Greene, what things that keep them in power in their districts are national box office poison. Um, and so they're, you know, they're constantly... Remember that whole Nixon expression, you run to the right and then you run to the center, right? right. Well, right. these guys just run to the right and then they run to the right again. Right. And so, you know, the Democrats have have benefited from that. Um, and Trump doesn't care. I mean, this is the other problem where I think what we mistake for talent is just a single-minded self-absorption and narcissism. Mm -hmm. Trump will do whatever is good for Trump. And if you happen to be with him at that moment, where you're good for Trump, then you benefit. Um, if not, then too damn bad about you. And um, I don't think that's sustainable. And I think that eventually Trump, you know, and Trumpism will be gone. The real question, and I think getting back to the things we were writing about in the Atlantic, how much damage could he do in the interim? Mm -hmm. And how much could he change the country? Mm -hmm. If somehow, you know, the Americans just don't embrace this sense of danger and Trump kind of, winds his way through the Electoral College again and, find, and you know, manages to land in the White House. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about your article because it is alternately thrilling in that Jerry Bruckheimer movie kind of way and chilling because it is not so far from what our reality could be. It's titled A Military Loyal to Trump. And you lay out a scenario, which is indeed quite frightening and terrifying, you explain very methodically how he can, once he becomes president, if he becomes president again, infiltrate the military in a way that this country has never seen before, where he breaks down and shatters every norm, and from a hierarchical standpoint, starts with the appointees, you know, the Christopher, uh, what's his name? Uh, Miller. Christopher Miller and, and Cash Patels of the world. These flunkies who couldn't give two shits about the Constitution, have no respect for the military, could be installed in the Defense Department and just break down the system from there. Speak to that. Well, this is a, this is a problem where I think a lot of Americans don't understand how their own government is staffed out. And what saved us the first time around in a lot of ways 
is that while a lot of Americans don't understand how the government is is um, populated, neither did Trump. And so Trump came in and just said, um, do this, do that, put this guy over here, put that guy over there. And, you know, that's when he learned about things like the civil service, Senate confirmation, people of principle who would say, no, Mr. President, I'm not doing that. And I don't have to do that, no matter how much you tell me. I, you know, not everything, you are not a king. You can't issue orders that are therefore instantly obeyed and so on. Um, but um, what people need to understand is every department, every executive department has a certain number of positions that are appointees, that are the president's appointees with the consent of the Senate. Now, normally that Senate consent is, is, pretty routine for most, especially for the lower level appointees, the mm -hmm. assistant secretaries, deputy assistant secretaries, and so on. Um, what Trump, I, I suspect, will try and do is what Tommy Tuberville just did. He could hold up a whole bunch of appointees. Mm -hmm. um, he could try and fill the gaps with acting um, appointees who are drawn from other parts of the government who might be um, you know, this was how Jeff Clark was going to become acting as attorney general, right? He's a kind of a mid-level nobody at the Justice Department. But because he had already been confirmed once at that level, he was senior enough to be, you know, catapulted up. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, if the Senate said, well, we don't want to live with that guy, he said, well, but you, had him, you can have him for a year. Um, and this is all the arcana of how the government is staffed. And normally, if you're talking about, um, I don't know, housing and urban development, right? I mean, it's not that's not really a going to be an instant tragedy. In fact, one of my favorite stories is that when Carson was made the secretary, uh, there was a quote in one of the papers about him. Somebody inside said, it's good that he doesn't know anything about the department or else he'd have broken stuff. Um, but, you know, he just had no idea what he was doing. Mm -hmm. The problem is Trump can put people in the Defense Department. Um, all he needs is a handful at the very top. No more Jim Mattis, no more Mark Milley. Um, you know, no more Mark Espers. And then, as I point out in the article, the chain of command is going to take care of a lot of the rest of that. Mm -hmm. That when you, you know, the U.S. military, and these are very loyal and principled people. And I say in the article, the one optimism people should take from this is that, the, oh, I've taught for 25 years at the War College. I've known hundreds and hundreds of officers. Um, these are patriotic, loyal, and, and duty-bound Americans. Um, but the system is not designed to stop the president. It is designed to execute his orders mm -hmm. like a lightning bolt through the ranks. If if you're a if you're a captain of the army and a major gives you an order because a, a colonel gave him an order, because a general gave her an order, you assume that these all came down from the commander in chief, you know, through the um through the 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 command that you work for and that therefore you should follow those orders. And that's uh, makes it different than HHS or the Department of Energy or whatever. I mean, it's a different animal. The Defense Department, it, they are as um, um, you know, in the early civil military literature, they used to call them the experts in violence. These are the people to whom we entrust the monopoly on organized use of force. Mm -hmm. And so Trump, I think, has learned his lesson, and you can see it in the plans they're writing up over at Heritage, um, the author of the 2025, the Project 2025 chapter at Heritage is none other than, wait for it, Chris Miller. Mm. Um, you know, who uh, kind of played this game at the end of saying, oh, I didn't know what was going on. You know, I wasn't really, I was just kind of keeping the lights on. Mm -hmm. um, but it's full of crazy stuff about purging the officer corps of Marxist indoctrination and, you know, all this other dark talk. And it's, and it's, um, it's very dangerous. So all Trump has to do is kind of get more than any other institution. I think the only one that's comparable would be the justice department. If he can get the heads of the justice department uh, and the defense department and control those two institutions, um, he's gone you know, 80% of the way toward a dictatorship. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I found so brilliant and chilling about your article is that it kind of shattered my own sense of comfort and security in thinking that there will always be the Mark Millies 
who will gather in a room and go, you know what, we're not going to listen to this fucker if he says something stupid or tries to tell us to do something bad. You broke it down, up and down that chain of command. And the one thing that I, I never thought of that you raised was that there's a lack of education in our country today when it comes to civics. And so half of these people, maybe more of them perhaps, don't really understand what would be uh, uh, a violation of the Constitution. So how, if you don't know what the Constitution says and you don't know what is or isn't a violation, how do you in the moment make a decision whether or not to obey a military order for the reasons you said when, you know, the appointees, it's up and down the chain, like, you're just going to be like, all right. And so I, I never thought of that. And I think a lot of people aren't thinking of that. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I don't want to leave people with the impression that like these, you know, the officers and um, men and women, you know, throughout the chain are um, robots. No. You and know, you say you make a point mindless. of saying they're not stupid. It's not about yeah, not stupidity stupid and it's not about not being educated. You know, lots of right. people They're, go to college, but they don't learn the shit today that you and I learned. And they don't learn it, I mean, in military education. I, I for years, no, I, I had a total, uh, a, um, I taught in a full-time capacity at the War College for a quarter century, but I was around that institution and other military educational institutions for about 30 years. And... Um, we just don't spend enough time talking about civil military relations, um, the Constitution. I, I and some of my colleagues tried to get more of that into the curriculum long before. I mean, year, I'm talking 15 years ago, um, you know, about Article One versus Article Two. You know, I mean, I think, look, if you're a military officer, you want to know the difference between Article One, Section Eight and Article Two, Section Two, which is, you know, Congress declares war, but the president is commander in chief. Um, but, but you can't also expect too much. You don't want every company commander saying, no, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to reinterpret this order in light of my deep constitutional knowledge. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you want other people higher in the chain of command to say, wait a minute, you know, is this an order I can, I should, can I, you know, are we in the, are we in a, having a problem here? Um, I think that that will not happen at the grassroots. I think that one of the scenarios I, I talk about in the in the piece is that you could get a rift within the Pentagon itself of pro-Trump and pro-constitutional officers, which mm -hmm. is a scary idea in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, but I think as a general problem when it comes to the command, the persona of the commander in chief, you're right, we don't spend enough time on this stuff either in school and certainly not in military, um, senior military education. And Trump will use that. He'll say, look, it's constitutional because I said it is. Mm -hmm. I am the state. I am the constitution. I am the final arbiter of what's right and wrong. And I am your commander. So general, tell your colonels, to tell their majors, to tell their lieutenants and captains. And, and again, the, the chain of command, which is, it's supposed to work that way. It's supposed to, you don't want, again, you know, I can't stress this enough. You don't want lieutenants in the field saying, now, hold on. I've read Marbury v. Madison, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. but you do want officers coming out of that tradition who, when they're more senior. And I think that we failed that f for a long time. And the other thing that could happen here, and I think people need to be aware of this, um, that Trump could take officers, um, who would have a lot of influence within the military, let them retire and then appoint them to civilian positions. Because another problem, and I didn't talk about this in the piece very much, but another problem is the double dipping problem that you can take people right out of uniform and send them right back in, um, in civilian clothes into a, into a civilian job where they will still have all those contacts with the military mm -hmm. of all those points of contact with the uniform services. Um, and still collect their pension and their salary. I mean, it's, you know, it's not, and I bring this up because for some folks, it won't be a whole lot of personal risk to say, listen, quit, retire, come back in two weeks. We'll get an exception because normally they have to wait six months, but the heads of the services who will be all a Trump appointees, they can just wave that away. There's a whole bunch of ways that they can, there are loopholes. And these loopholes exist because no one ever thought a president would do this stuff that Trump could exploit. Mm -hmm. There's there's 9 million ways it could go wrong. And you know, I 
I ran out of space in 2000 where it's talking about all the ways it could go wrong. Um, but there are a lot of ways because our system, and this is really the bottom line, our system is not designed to handle an intentionally criminal president. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, you and I are the same age and we both grew up in an era where we had such reverence and respect for the founding fathers. All we ever heard was how these guys, they just, they spelled it all out. They spelled it all out. I don't know how they did it, but they spelled it all out. And now we're learning like they didn't spell out enough, right? And well, I don't... to the point you're making, they didn't spell, they, yeah. they, they anticipated a Nixon. They never anticipated a Trump. And they barely anticipated a Nixon. I ba- mean, barely, they, yes. You know, they, uh, the, the line I keep using over and over again, and, and the line I closed out my book with was James Madison when he was asked about checks and balances. And he, you could, during the debate on the Constitution. And he finally kind of gets exasperated and says, look, if we are not virtuous people, I mean, he, he, he obviously didn't, he said in the 18th century equivalent of, if we're not a virtuous people, checks and balances won't mean shit. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he basically said, is there no virtue among us? If not, then we are in a wretched situation. And, and he was trying to explain that we could, we, the founders, we can keep writing this stuff into the constitution all day long, mm-hmm. but that's not going to, that's not going to save us if everybody decides to just to be an unvirtuous country. I, I will tell you as a former, you know, working political scientist, I used to teach poli sci and did all that stuff, you know, years for years to undergraduates. Um, you know, one of the rules of thumb in political science is the longer your constitution, the bigger the problem you have. Because if you feel the need to spell out every possible exigency, every possible contingency, then you're worried that your constitution isn't going to really work. Um, the genius, part of the fun of our constitution is that it doesn't spell stuff out. It's like, look, you're decent people. You'll figure this out. And what it doesn't account for is an indecent person supported by a lot of other indecent people mm-hmm. and unvirtuous people who are saying, we're going to screw with this. And we're going to expect everyone else to adhere to the norms except us. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you wrote in your piece, and I quote, Trump and his allies understand that by leaving the military outside their political control the last time around, they also left intact a crucial bulwark against their plans. They will not make the same mistake twice. That's pretty they, damn no. chilling. No, they won't. They've learned from it. And there are people working on this and looking around for potential appointees that they can fastball past the Senate or that they can pull in from other parts of the government. Um, they are, you know, they they think they can win and they are um, setting up the mechanisms uh, to do this fast because the last time around they learned, like with the Muslim ban, they learned, let's just do this Muslim ban. And it wasn't well written and it gets kicked back by the courts. And then, it gets sent to another bunch of goofballs down the hall at the White House, and they send it, and then it gets kicked back. And it takes them, you know, three or four iterations before they get something they can call a Muslim ban without calling it that. They're not going to do that again. Mm-hmm. They're going to walk in and say, you, you, and you over to those offices. You, you, and you over there. The, my colleague David Frum for, for years now has had a great line about this. This time, the velociraptors have learned how to turn the handles on the doors. Mm-hmm. Velociraptors are some pretty scary dinosaurs. Can you, in your wildest ima- imagination, uh, accept where we are today with this whole situation? You talk about in your piece Trump and the military. Recently, we've learned Trump has, you know, to your point about Muslim bans, his plans for immigration, mass deportations, camps. It sounds like a fucking horror show that's going to begin on January twenty first, two thousand. 25 if he gets back in the oval office can you believe we're after everything we know after everything that's happening they're neck and neck in the polls like is is this just unbelievable to you or have you been around long enough and taught long enough and been exposed to all kinds of things in this country in this world that it's not a surprise to you no i'm surprised um and i've been surprised for a while simply because um you know i always knew there were people like trump out there but i had this immense um, faith in my fellow citizens that, you know, like the first time when Trump ran and he got laughed out of the room, my, my dad, I always tell this story. Um, my dad, um, working class guy, you know, um, 
high school depression era, high school dropout, all that. You know, what you would have thought um, left the Democrats after the late 60s, right? He was one of those classic white working Democrats. The party left me. I didn't leave the party, you know, became a Republican, Nixon, and then a Reagan voter. But um, I, I remember when uh, one of my uh, uncles who was back around 1999, 2000, was like, Trump, who could be that? And my father just ridiculed it. You know, be serious. No, don't, don't be a don't be an idiot. You know, um, this was I just counted on everybody kind of having this sort of um, anchor of common sense that my father had about politics. Mm. You know, my dad read a newspaper every day. Um, he, uh, I, I, um, he, he had very strong partisan views, but he was ticket splitter for most of his life. You know, he voted Republicans for president, but at the state and local level, he he voted for Democrats regularly. Um, when just before he died, uh, it was 2012, the 2012 election. And I was watching the, he and I, and I, this is in our own worst enemy. It's a story I tell at the beginning of the book where he's watching Obama and, um, Romney, of course, we're from Massachusetts and Romney, I said, good guy, dad, but I don't think he's going to make it. I said, so, you know, Obama's really going to cruise to realize, he said, my father nodded, this guy who was a racist, you know, born in 1918, old school, right winger, you know, the whole thing. And he said, they're both good men. Mm. We'll be okay. We'll be fine. And I think that's what surprises me that's lost is, is how millions of my fellow citizens have become completely detached from reality mm -hmm. and do nothing but marinate in this weird otherworldly anger about, about stuff that isn't even real. I mean, I, I've had this argument with people for ages now, you know, ages, it feels like forever. It's a little more like months, you know, the economy's terrible and in crimes out of control and inflation's out of control. You know, the, I lived through the seventies. We didn't have these kinds of pitched, brutal, fuck you kind of arguments mm -hmm. in the 1970s. And we were all suffering mightily mm -hmm. during the seventies. Yep. You know, a high unemployment, inflation, interest rates through the roof. Mm -hmm. And somehow, you know, and again, I think a lot of it is social media and the environment we're in and our our, our friends over at the Fox Network and the other, you know, right wing um, crapatoria that pump, pump all this stuff out. Um, you know, that that we we somehow got through the 70s without constantly threatening each other with violence. And here we are in one of the most affluent peaceful periods in our history mm -hmm. and we we can't you know say hello to each other without adding screw you to the end of it and and i think that's that's the part that really shocks me andy is that um we've become this nation of sort of crazed toddlers with guns who can't work through a, a conversation for five minutes well, the, the, the story about your dad is a, is a great story. And uh, the reason I tell that story is my father was a very flawed man. I mean, he, you know, my, my brothers and my sister, like he, he was on the verge of getting thrown out of visiting my brother's house one time because he kept wanting to drop the N word, you know, because he was just that kind of guy. I mean, he grew mm -hmm. up that way. And finally, but I'll tell you what, he never talked that way about Barack Obama because you don't there, there was this line, right? You didn't talk that way about the president of the United States, no matter who he is, um, that you, you respected the office, you were an American, you understood that you don't always get your way in an election, and that, you know, and that he was a good man. That Say, I disagree with him, like John McCain, you know, but he's a good man, I just happen to disagree with him. Um, those days are, I think those days are long gone, but I always, I, I always tell that story because even if a man as flawed mm -hmm. as my dad could be so decent politically, you know, what's stopping everybody else? Well, we're, we're, we're living in an age where the, the civility is gone, logic is gone, rational thinking is gone, humanity is gone, truth is Narcissism gone. Narcissism rules everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tom, thank you so much for coming on. This was a great conversation. I do hope you'll come back. Thank you, Andy. It was nice to be with you. Take care. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and also follow or subscribe. 
Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week.